night. Uh, to begin with, you might want to open up your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, I do have a question before we begin, though. Um, why don't pirates take showers before they walk the plank? Because they just wash up on shore. Ah, no, dad joke, sorry. I didn't mean to ruin your day. <laughs> okay. Uh, Google them. You know, some of them are good, some of them are bad. I don't know. I test them out on Jolene. If she says, eh, I try to stay away from it, you know. But. All right. Well, <clears throat> for those of you that have been in class for the last few weeks, you know, we've been looking at the question as to whether we can trust the Bible. All right. And, of course, you know the answer to that, right? It's going to be yes, of course you can trust the Bible. But we've been going into some uh, evidences, some facts, some things that we can look at to help prove that, right? And that's a, that's a big deal because in our world today, you know, what do most people think about the Bible, you know? I mean, if you go out to uh, Google, just mentioned about the jokes, if you Google things about the inspiration of the Bible, you know what you'll read? You'll see a lot of stuff about, well, it wasn't, the, the first five books weren't really written by Moses. It was a bunch of different writers over a certain amount of time. And all these, quote, scholars say, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't Moses. It wasn't inspired. It was a bunch of guys back in the Bronze Age, you know, that before there was enlightenment, right? And they wrote these things, and, and that's what they're based on. We can prove. We can find things in the Scripture as well as other ways to prove that this Bible it can be trusted. In fact, today, we're going to look a little bit at the inspiration of God and how that works throughout the Bible. You know, we, can accept, we accept the canon, right? We've talked about that the last few weeks, the canon of the Old Testament being the 39 books, the canon of the New Testament with the 27 making up a total of 66 books. And we looked at a lot of evidence within Scripture and outside of Scripture to prove that those should be part of the inspired canon of the Word of God, right? That rule, that standard that we can trust in, right? And we looked at that, we can see that, that, that those should be part of the books that are literally God-breathed. The Greek word is theodnustos, which simply means God-breathed. It's inspired by God. We have verses that actually uh, uh, describe this, right? We've read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 a couple of times. Of course, six, verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and correction. Now, <clears throat> that's a major verse, right? And you can say, well, that's just what somebody said. Okay, but if you're going to believe that to be truth, then what are you going to believe about the rest of scripture? This is all scripture inspired by God, right? Interesting. So if you're going to believe that verse, pretty much you've got to believe the rest of it, right? That it's all inspired by God, right? Look, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, actually. And let's read something from there. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 19. It says, So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What is Peter saying there? 
Scripture didn't come from man. This was not written by man. Yes, sure, they, they had the tools and they used their hands and their minds to write it out. But this was coming from the Spirit of God, coming from God, not of private interpretation. There's another verse, right? If you believe that, then what do you got to do? You pretty much got to believe the rest of it. You can't just pick and choose, right? You can't just say, well, this part's inspired, that part's not. You got to believe it, or else the whole thing is false, right? Makes sense, right? It contains claims by those who spoke the words also revealed by the Spirit. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's see something else that Paul wrote. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 2, beginning of verse 9. And, and I want you to pay attention to these scriptures because if you ever have a discussion with someone who might say, you know, the Bible's just something somebody wrote, you know, these are good verses to go to. You can start from these, actually. First Corinthians 2, chapter 9. I mean, First Corinthians 2, verse 9. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those in him. This is a verse from Isaiah, chapter 64. And what is Isaiah saying there? Man doesn't know. It had to be revealed to him from God, right? We just don't know about God. We have to have his character revealed. Yeah, we understand there had to be something greater. There had to be a creator of this universe. It had to come about through someone greater than man. But we didn't know who that was until it was revealed to us. Verse 10, but God has revealed to them, revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. In other words, how do you know things? Your soul, the spirit that's in you, right? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God in the same way. That's how our spirit gets to know about God through the spirit of God who has revealed himself to us. Interesting, isn't it? That's verses we read sometimes. We don't necessarily think about the deeper part of that, right? But that's what Paul is saying. We know who God is, as Isaiah prophesied, because he's revealed himself to us. He's written these things. These things were written down because of the Spirit that moved men. All right. So we could talk about these, thing, these verses all day, right? How the Scriptures will tell you that it's inspired, right? But can we go to other places to observe things about the Scripture? prove that they are inspired by God? Well, of course we can. There's, there's uh, several ways we can look at that. One of them is the unity of the Bible. As we mentioned, the Bible contains 66 books, right? But of those 66 books, they were not written at the same time, right? In fact, all 66 of those books were written over a span of about 1,600 years. 1,600 years. Not at one time, and there was about 40 generations in there. That's a lot of different people, right, that are writing in this Bible. By approximately 40 authors from every walk of life. In fact, let's read, the, read through those a little bit. This is in your outline. Uh, you have these. The, there, you can read through them. Moses, who was a political leader, trained in the, in the universities and the colleges of Egypt. You have Peter, who was a fisherman. Amos, who was a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Nehemiah, a cupbearer to a king. Remember, he was in Babylon. He was the cupbearer. Daniel, prime minister, right? Luke, a physician. Solomon, a king. Matthew, who was a tax collector of all things. And Paul, a tip maker and a teacher. 
look at that, how these different people are writing over the span of 1,600 years in this Bible and in different places. Moses in the wilderness, Jeremiah in a dungeon, Daniel on a hillside and in a palace in Babylon, Paul inside prison walls, Luke while traveling around, John, remember, in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and of course others in the middle of military campaign. Not only that, they wrote these at different times, as mentioned in your outline here. David in times of war, Solomon, I mean Solomon in times of peace, right? You also have uh, different moods, some writing when they're at the height of joy, others in the deep, dark, despair, depths of despair. And it not only occurred over 1,600 years, but it was on three continents. You have Asia, Africa, and Europe, right? In different places. You can't get much farther apart than that, right? At least at that time, nobody knew about the new world yet, right? Three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, which subject matter includes many different topics. The origin of man, we can find out the origin of man. We can find out the nature of God, how he's revealed himself to us, who he is, his character, and, of course, about sin that entered through the world by one man and was taken out by another. Interesting, right? All 66 of these books are in unity. You have all these authors. What did they do? They wrote about the same thing. They wrote about God, his plan of salvation, and beginning from... The book of Genesis, you can see how paradise was lost, right? Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden because of that sin. And you can go all the way to Revelation and see how paradise was regained. What is the main theme of Revelation? Have you ever studied it? Victory. Victory in Christ Jesus, whom has been sent for us, and we now can live in paradise through eternity. Interesting how that starts and begins and ends, right? Also, you can compare um, even more detail than that what happened in the, with the tree of life in the garden, right? God said, they can't eat of the tree of life, yes, they'll live forever, right? They had to guard it, put the cherubim at the gate of the garden. But in Revelation, the tree of life has now been given to us. We now have the possibility of eternal life. Jesus came, died for us, but not only that, he preached that we might have eternal life. Life. What was the first things he was talking about when he started preaching? Eternal life through him. He didn't make any bones about it. He said, I am the way. And we see that all through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Interesting, right? We can see the continuity, the unity, the inspiration. And think about that for a minute. <sighs> Say you were to take, I don't know, you know, 10 different authors living in one place, writing about one subject one mood, one time, would they be in unity? Well, think about all the scholars that have written about the Bible over the years. Uh, you know, you've got some that say, well, like I said, it, it's not inspired, or, or this wasn't written by this, Moses, or this wasn't written by Paul, or whatever. There'd be complete disharmony. You know how it is. You can't even get a group together in a meeting and everybody agree on everything, right? In fact, in this room right now, I doubt everybody's agreeing with me right now, probably. But think about that. Over all these years, the unity that's been with these writers, how did that happen? Was it from men? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that was inspiration, folks. Anyway, anyway that's, that's one evidence we have, something that we may not think about very often, but is very true. The 
It's amazing to think about all that time that has gone through, and yet we can know simply who God is and his plan from all these writers. What, how else can we do that? Well, believe it or not, we can use science. <laughs> now, that's been a big word in the last few years, right? Follow the science, right? And, of course, if you met somebody from the world who wanted to talk about this, what are they going to tell you? This stuff was written in the Bronze Age back, you know, when men didn't know anything about the world, didn't understand things. They thought the earth was flat. They thought if you sailed far enough, you'd fall off the end. I read some stuff about Christopher Columbus years ago. I think he did think the world was round, but most people at his time thought he was an idiot because when he sailed off, they knew he wasn't coming back. He was going to come off the, fall off the end of the world, which, of course, he didn't do because the earth was round. And a matter of fact, it turns out there's some reference to that in Scripture. Let's turn over to the book of Isaiah, chapter uh, 40. Let's read some things that Isaiah had to say in his prophecy. Isaiah is a treasure trove for this stuff. And if you've ever looked at it, especially the prophecy of Jesus, it's amazing stuff. Chapter 40, and let's see, let's go with uh, verse 22. Isaiah says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Now, Isaiah lived in the 8th century B.C., in the 700s B.C., right? Did they know that the earth went around the sun then? Did they know that it was a sphere that kind of hung out in space? No, they thought everything revolved around the earth, if anything, right? They thought the earth was at the center of it all. Didn't realize that there was a sun that all these planets and stars went around, right? And all these galaxies and all these other things that we know about today from science. How about turn over to Psalm chapter 8 there and see something else that was written. by the psalmist David. Psalms 8, verse 8. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Hmm. Well, what's David talking about there? Well, did you know in the oceans there are paths? You Navy guys, I'm sure, know that. There are currents, right? The Atlantic and Pacific have currents that rotate around. You know, if you go out to the beach, you get out too far, you can get caught up in a current. Yeah. And it might you know, take you on out there into the middle of the deep ocean, whether it's hard, you know, as hard as you're going to fight and swim, try to get back. You may not make it. We know these things today. We didn't know that back then. Here we have David talking about it. He didn't live near an ocean. Well, he lived near the Mediterranean, I guess. They probably, there's currents in the Mediterranean, I guess. But he didn't know about the Atlantic. Yes. Yes, very good. Yes, that's true. I, I, and I, we, if you go to uh, one of the guys that does all this stuff is... You've heard Kyle Butt. Actually, his brother Stan Butt's going to be here Wednesday for our summer series. 
working for Apologetics Press, has been here and talk about a lot of these things that we can read about in prophecy that are proofs, you know, for what we know about today in science. Another one is uh, Job. If you wish, turn over to uh, the book of Job, and let's read a couple things from that book. Job chapter, let's start with chapter 26. And by the way, Job is a really old book. Really old. I, I can't remember exactly when it's considered to have been written. I should look that up, but it's probably one of the oldest books we have in the Old Testament. Chapter 26, verse 7. He stretches out the north. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Here's Job. Here we read about God suspending the earth in space. Now, do you think they understood that at the time of Job? Nope. Pretty sure they thought that, if anything, the earth was being held up by Atlas or somebody. I'm not sure. But these are things that we read about in the Old Testament that can be proved by science today. Turn over to Job chapter 38. Verse 16. Another one about the sea. Have you entered the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of the depths? What do we know about the oceans, right? There are springs down there, thermonuclear, hot springs at the bottom of the ocean, volcanic springs that push water up. We know about these things from science. Do you think they knew about that at the time of Job? Interesting concept, right? Another one from the New Testament. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 17. Read this from a <coughs> sermon here. This is Paul preaching, in, of course, in, in Athens about the unknown God. And he says in verse 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-abortion times and the boundaries of their dwelling. Now, at the time when he's preaching this, there were different, of course, different nations, city-states, whatever you want to call them, of course. Uh, the time of Athens, it, it, this was the time of Rome, right, when Paul's preaching. But Athens had been part of the Grecian Empire, right? And there are a lot of different types of people that Alexander had kind of united. And Paul's saying, these people are all came from the same place, same blood. No matter what color their skin was, their ethnicity, what their religion is, Paul's saying they all came from one God. One blood. He created everybody. And you can imagine what the people in Athens are thinking at the time. What is he talking about? You know, they had multiple gods, multiple ethnicities, right? They believed they were superior to most people that they had run into on the world. And that's why, you know, of course, Alexander was able to go out and conquer the world because they thought they were from God to direct judgment on all the world. Interesting how he's talking about this. That's right. You can talk, uh, DNA, evidence has proved that out, right? That we are all from one basic common blood originally, right? We're, we are, it can be proved from the prophecies that we are all from God. Well, 
they weren't, these things weren't confirmed by men until modern times, right? The last, I don't know, a couple hundred years probably. Uh, these are things that we can see now that proved things from the scripture to be true. We can understand why they were written and hey, how they are in harmony with what we know today. And not only that, we have prophecy. And we don't always study prophecy a lot because so many of the things we, we read about, you know, we know, we understand it, we understand what it's talking about. And, and when we do study it, sometimes it can be a little difficult. But it really does provide us a way to understand the inspiration of God. If you'll turn over to the book of Isaiah, we're going to look at a few of these. And if you want to look at uh, inspiration of the Bible, Isaiah is the first place to go to. Absolutely. <coughs> turn over to Isaiah chapter 41. And let's read a few verses from that chapter. Verse 21. Am I in 41? Yes. Verse 21 says, Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us the things to come. Show the things that are, are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. And what's Isaiah referring to there? It's abomination of idols, of false gods, false worship. And what he's saying is, can these idols give you the future, tell you what's going to happen from times past till times in the future? No, he cannot. They cannot do that. God can. In fact, turn over to chapter 42 there. Let's read a few more verses. Verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. There it is. God's saying, the idols can't do this. I give you prophecy. I tell you what's going to happen before it happens. Interesting concept, right? Turn to 46, chapter 46 there of Isaiah. 46, beginning in verse 8. Remember this, and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end of from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east the man who executes my counsel from a far country indeed I have spoken it I will also bring it to pass I have purposed it I will also do it here we have God saying I make prophecy I tell you what's to come and I make it happen idols can't do that idols cannot do that Job 38, yeah, the one we just read about the paths, yeah, yeah, there's a bunch, yes, absolutely. <laughs> what else can we glean from prophecy? Isaiah 
has a lot. Turn over to chapter 13 there. Let's see what else Isaiah describes. All right. Keep in mind, Isaiah lived in the 8th century B.C., 700s into the 600s B.C., chapter 13, verse 17, he says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of their womb. Their eye will not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, for nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. Here we have Isaiah with a prophecy of the destruction of Babylon. When did that happen? Well, we know from Daniel 5 the story about when it happened, and that was around 535, 29 B.C. About oh, 100 to two, 150 to 200 years after this prophecy. In fact, Babylon was not even a big kingdom at that time. It was only around as a great place, a great kingdom, for about 100 years. And it was destroyed in 530 B.C. when the Medes and Persians came in and took it over. You know about Daniel 5, right? The handwriting on the wall. Belshazzar's having the great feast, using all the emblems from the temple. And that very night, Cyrus the Great comes in and takes over Babylon, destroys the city. Babylon was located in the area of the Euphrates and, uh, and Tigris River. I think it's the Euphrates that actually went right in the middle of it. I think that's right. I should look it up. It's the area today, what's known as Iraq, right? And to this day, it's in ruin. You can still see the stones and the walls and things like that. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but Saddam Hussein tried to start rebuilding it. There's actually a big old wall there now, similar to what it was supposed to have looked like. He started it. Obviously, he didn't finish it, but he started it. But it's mostly ruins. You've heard of the great hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. Nobody knows for sure what they look like, but Nebuchadnezzar II, who lived at the time of when Daniel was written, provided those for his wife, who was actually from a different place. I think she might have been Israelite. I'm not sure about that. Who couldn't see the beautiful gardens that she had grown up with. She's living in the desert now, right? In the area of Iraq. And she wanted to see trees and vegetation to remind her where she was from. Those supposedly were a, quite a sight to behold. She won't find them today. Won't see anything like that today. Babylon was destroyed, just like Isaiah prophesied about. Turn over to chapter 19. Let's see where else Isaiah prophesied about something. Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 1. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at its presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set Egyptian against Egyptian. Everyone, wait a minute, I will set Egyptian against Egyptian. Everyone will fight against his brother, and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their counsel. They will counsel, consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master. 
and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. We know about the great empire of Egypt, right? How great it was. You can still go there today and see the tombs of the great pharaohs, right? You ever looked at the stuff about King Tut? That is fascinating, man. How that was discovered and never been grave robbed. When Howard Carter, the guy that discovered that in the early 1900s, finally got dug down to the steps and opened the door, the seal was still on the door that had been put there in like 1300 B.C. Can you imagine seeing that in 1920? Fascinating stuff. He was able to go in that tomb and imagine opening those doors and all that hot air blowing on him that had been in there for 13 or, four, I don't know, 20, 2,000 years or something like that. Can you imagine? But here's a prophecy of how that kingdom ended. It was destroyed pretty much from inter internally. And they had some famine going on and stuff like that, probably from God, through judgment. In fact, I would say, yes, it's from God. Of course it was from God. They eventually imploded. And that's like a lot of nations do, right? Things get done internally, things change. Next thing you know, they're gone. I have a prophecy about it right here, right there in Isaiah. Interesting, isn't it? <coughs> Turn over to Isaiah chapter 44. I want to read something else. And if you've never heard this one before, jot, no, take a note of it, because this is a fascinating, well, for me, it's one of the most fascinating prophecies there is. Remember when I said Isaiah was probably written in the 8th century B.C., in the 700s, he lived into the 600s B.C. Got to think backwards on that. Beginning in Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Let me, before I continue, let me explain what's going on there. Remember, when the Israel went into captivity in Babylon, the Medes and the Persians eventually overtook Babylon, destroyed the city. Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, is killed. And then Cyrus, or some know him as Darius, Cyrus the Great, Darius the Mede, you could read about him in your world history, took over. And do you remember what happens next? He eventually lets the Israelites do what? Go back and rebuild the temple. He allows them to do that. Verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, what? Wait a minute, wait. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasures, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. He mentions his name. 150 years before he's born. Imagine somebody in 1870 talking about this President Joe Biden that's going to be president in 2020. Or even worse, Donald Trump wasn't going to be president in 2020. Imagine nobody prophesying on something like that, right? That's what Isaiah's doing right here. Continuing on. Thus says the Lord to his son, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, subdue nations before him, and loose the arm of kings to open before him the double doors, 
so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked and make crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and here is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. What is Isaiah saying there that God did? He is going to raise up Cyrus the Great to bring his people back to restore them to their land, to rebuild the temple. So why? They will know who he is. Obviously, when they went into captivity, they lost a lot of their heritage, you might say. You know, Israel being a religious nation, right, created by God, his people, they'd lost a lot of that in captivity. Not worshiping in the temple anymore, right? They're not doing the sacrifices. They've been in captivity for 70 some odd years. God's going to restore all that, and he's going to do it through Cyrus the Great, the king of the Medes and the Persians. What a fantastic prophecy. I remember the first time I read that, it blew my mind. Like, I, don't, I didn't realize this, you know? And when you know the history, you understand that's exactly what happened. Fascinating. A couple more there. Turn over to Zephaniah, if you wish. Let's read something from Zephaniah, chapter 2. Verse 13 says, And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation, as dry as the wilderness. The herds shall lie down in their midst, every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern shall lodge in the capitals of her pillars, their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none besides me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? And everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. What do we know about in Scripture about Nineveh? Of course, remember Jonah? Went to Nineveh to preach. Didn't want to go. What happened to him? He got swallowed up by a whale. Remember that? Yeah. Nineveh was a great city in Assyria. God judged it because they became haughty, destroyed. And to this day, there is no more Nineveh. Interesting, right? Another one. Ezekiel. Turn over to Ezekiel. Chapter 26. Beginning in verse 1. It came to pass in the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has set against Jerusalem, aha, she is broken, who is the gateway of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you, as the sea causes its waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, I'll also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It should be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, says the Lord God, it shall become plunder for the nations. 
What happened to Tyre? You know where Tyre was? It was on the coast, right? Eastern coast of the Great Sea. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar, when he came and took the Israelites, he sieged the city of Tyre. Caused so much havoc that the people actually got in boats and rode over to the little island not far from there to get out of there. Babylon took a lot of them back. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar took a lot of them back. Then, around 330 B.C., Alexander the Great came in, was coming down to Jerusalem, that area, but wanted to stop by and stop and worship. And the people of Tyre said, no, you can't do that. So what did he do? He sacked it. Destroyed it. Many nations will rise up against it. Interesting. That prophecy is describing what happened, basically. To this day, it's wiped out. There's a modern town there, right? But the ruins of that old city are gone. It was used for fishermen to spread their nets. Interesting how these things are fulfilled, right? But, greatest prophecy of all. Turn over to Luke, chapter 24. Got one minute. Luke 24, verse 44. <clears throat> then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Remember how we talked about the Hebrew Bible is divided up in three sections? The law, the prophets, and the poetry or Psalms. That's what he's describing right there. 45, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins shall be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of this thing. There's Jesus telling everyone at the synagogue there that all this stuff that happened in the Old Testament was about him. All the prophecies that came true, all the prophecies that we read about in history, all the things that Isaiah wrote about the Messiah to come, all the scripture about the law and the character of God and who we are to be and how we're to live, all the sacrifices that were made through the priesthood pointed to one thing. Jesus Christ and when those verses there he's telling them it's about me and those who believe and repent will receive remission of sin he just gave them hope and those who could understand understood can you imagine being there and realizing ah it was all about him this is him fascinating thing to think about right well, these things are great, but you know what? You don't have to have a whole lot of evidence to understand that the earth didn't just come from nothing. This universe didn't just evolve. Somebody had to create it, and that creator had to reveal himself to us, and he did, first through the prophets, then through Jesus Christ, and we have it in Scripture, it's written down for us so we can believe it because it's inspired. It came from Him. We have the unity of the Bible to prove it. We have scientific for our knowledge. And we have 
fulfilled prophecy. There's over 330-something prophecies of Christ that were fulfilled. And if you think about it, the odds, it's in your outline here, I can remember what it was, the odds of all those prophecies coming true in one man is 1 in 84 times to the 123rd power. In other words, 84 followed by 123 zeros. I don't think I could write that on our board. I don't have a board, but anyways. The odds of that happening is phenomenal. You have a better chance of winning the lottery. I'm just saying. The stuff is there, you know? No, I did not. Yeah, life, live, get a 17, yeah, that's very true. Life is in the blood that was shed by him. Yeah. All right. We're running out of time. Um, there is subjective evidence of the inspiration as well. And uh, next week we'll discuss uh, whether we can understand that. Whether we can simply read the Bible and understand what the plan and who God is. All right. Sorry to go on past time. Our time's up. Thanks for being here.